Welcome to Season 5 of OperaVox Audiobooks. Having spent most of the last two months away in Europe, which was great by the way, I'm delighted to be able to present to you something rather different in the literary world, and that is the Arabian Nights, translated by Hussein Hadawi and based on the text of the 14th century Syrian manuscript edited by Moussin Mahdi. I'm going to allow Mr. Hadawi to introduce the text a little, as I think it's helpful to understand the history of this collection of stories and to understand why this translation is of some significance. And so over to Mr. Hadawi. The Arabian Nights. Introduction. Bless thee, bottom, bless thee, thou art translated. A Midsummer Night's Dream. The World of the Arabian Nights. It has been some years now since, as a little boy in Baghdad, I used to listen to tales from the Thousand and One Nights. It sometimes seems like yesterday, sometimes like ages ago, for the Baghdad I knew then seems now closer to the time of the nights than to our own times. It was on long winter nights when my grandmother was visited by one lady or another, Um Fatma or Um Ali, and always dressed in black, still mourning for a husband or a son long lost. We would huddle around the brazier, as the embers glowed in the dim light of the oil lamp, which cast a soft shadow over her sad, wrinkled face, as if to smooth out the sorrows of the years. I waited patiently while she and my grandmother exchanged news, indulged in gossip, and whispered one or two asides. Then there would be a pause, and the lady would smile at me, and I would seize the proffered opportunity and ask for a story, a long story. I used to like romances and fairy tales best, because they took me to a land of magic, and because they were long. The lady would begin the story, and I would listen, first apprehensively, knowing from experience that she would improvise, depending on how early or late the hour. If it was early enough, she would spin the yarn leisurely, amplifying here and interpolating there episodes I recognised from other stories. And even though this sometimes troubled my childish notions of honesty and my sense of security in reliving familiar events, I never objected because it prolonged the action and the pleasure. If the hour was late, she would, in spite of my entreaties, tell either a brief story or one of normal length, summarising here and omitting there. If I knew the story, I would protest, reminding her of what she had left out, and she smilingly would promise to tell me the story in its entirety the next time. I would then entreat her to narrate at least such and such an episode. Sometimes my grandmother, out of love for me and her own delight in the story, would add her voice to mine, and the lady, pleased to be appreciated and happy to oblige, would consent to go on, narrating in a gentle, steady voice, except when she impersonated a man or woman in a moment of passion, or a demon in a fit of anger, at times getting up to act out the part. Her pauses were just as delicious as her words, as we waited 
anticipating a pleasure certain to come. At last, with the voice still steady, but the pauses shorter and less frequent, she would reunite the lovers, or reconcile the hero to fate, bringing the story, alas, to an end, and leaving me with a feeling of nostalgia, a sense at once of fulfilment and of loss. Then I would go to sleep, still living with magic birds and with demons who pursued innocent lovers and haunted my dreams, and often dreaming, as I grew older, of a face in some arcand that glowed with love and blessed my waking hours. So has the drab fabric of life been transformed into the gossamer of romance, as these stories have been spun for centuries in family gatherings, public assemblies and coffee-houses, in Baghdad, Damascus or Cairo. Indeed, on a recent trip to Marrakesh, I came across storytellers in a public square, mesmerising their audiences. Everybody has loved them, for they enchanted the young and the old alike with their magic. In the nights themselves, tales divert, cure, redeem, and save lives. Shahrazad cures Shahrayar of his hatred of women, teaches him to love, and by doing so saves her own life and wins a good man. The Caliph Harun al-Rashid finds more fulfilment in satisfying his sense of wonder by listening to a story than in his sense of justice or his thirst for vengeance. And the King of China spares four lives when he finally hears a story that is stranger than a strange episode from his own life. Even angry demons are humanised and pacified by a good story. And everyone is always ready to oblige, for everyone has a strange story to tell. The work consists of four categories of folk tales fables, fairy tales, romances, and comic as well as historical anecdotes, the last two often merging into one category. They are divided into nights, in sections of various lengths, a division that, although it follows no particular plan, serves a dual purpose. It keeps Shariah and us in suspense, and brings the action to a more familiar level of reality. The essential quality of these tales lies in their success in interweaving the unusual, the extraordinary, the marvellous and the supernatural into the fabric of everyday life. Animals discourse and give lessons in moral philosophy, Normal men and women consort or struggle with demons, and, like them, change themselves or anyone else into any form they please. And humble people lead a life full of accidents and surprises, drinking with an exalted caliph here or sleeping with a gorgeous girl there. Yet both the usual incidents and the extraordinary coincidences are nothing but the web and weft of divine providence in a world in which people often suffer but come out all right at the end. They are enriched by the pleasure of a marvellous adventure, and a sense of wonder which makes life possible. As for the readers, their pleasure is vicarious and aesthetic, derived from the escape into an exotic world of wish-fulfilment, and from the underlying act of transformation and the consequent pleasure which may be best defined in Freudian terms 
as the sudden overcoming of an obstacle. Such an effect, which is contingent on merging the supernatural and the natural, and securing a willing suspension of disbelief, the storyteller of the nights produces by the precise and concrete detail that he uses in a matter-of-fact way in description, narration and conversation, bridging the gap between the natural and supernatural situations. It is this quality, by the way, that explains the appeal of these tales to the romantic imagination. For instance, the she-demon is a serpent as thick as the trunk of a palm tree, while the demon is as thin as a spear and as long as two. The transparent curtain hiding the gorgeous girl in the bed is red-speckled, and the seductive girl from Baghdad buys ten pounds of mutton, while the pious gardener buys two flagons of wine for the mysterious lovers. Thus the phantasmagoric is based on the concrete, the supernatural grounded in the natural. Dissemination and Manuscripts The stories of the knights are of various ethnic origins, Indian, Persian and Arabic. In the process of telling and retelling, they were modified to conform to the general life and customs of the Arab society that adapted them, and to the particular conditions of that society at a particular time. They were also modified, as in my own experience, to suit the role of the storyteller, or the demand of the occasion. But different as their ethnic origins may be, these stories reveal a basic homogeneity resulting from the process of dissemination and dissimulation under Islamic hegemony, or homogeneity, or distinctive synthesis that marks the cultural and artistic history of Islam. No one knows exactly when a given story originated, but it is evident that some stories circulated orally for centuries before they began to be collected and written down. Arab historians of the 10th century, like al-Masudi and Ibn al-Nadim, speak of the existence of such collections in their time. One was an Arabic work called The Thousand Tales, or The Thousand Nights, a translation from a Persian work entitled Hazar Asana, A Thousand Legends. Both works are now lost, but although it is not certain whether any of these stories or which of them were retained in subsequent collections, it is certain that the Hazar Afsana supplied the popular title as well as the general scheme. The framed story of Shahrazad and Shahraya and the division into knights to at least one such collection, namely the Thousand and One Nights. The stories of the knights circulated in different manuscript copies until they were finally written down in a definite form, or what may be referred to as the original version, in the second half of the 13th century, within the Mamluk domain, either in Syria or in Egypt. That version, now lost, was copied a generation or two later in what became the archetype for subsequent copies. It too is now lost, but its existence is clearly attested to by the remarkable similarities in substance, form and style among the various early copies, a fact that points to a common origin. Specifically, all the copies share the same nucleus of stories, which must have formed the original, 
and which appear in the present translation. The only exception is the story of Kamar al-Zaman, of which only the first few pages are extant in any Syrian manuscript, and for this reason I have not included it in the present translation. From the archetype there evolved two separate branches of manuscripts, the Syrian and the Egyptian. Of the Syrian branch, four manuscripts are known to exist. The first is the copy in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, in three volumes, numbers 3609 to 3611. It is of all existing manuscripts the oldest and the closest to the original, having been written some time during the 14th century. The other three Syrian manuscripts were copied much later, in the 16th, 18th and 19th centuries respectively. They are, however, very close to the 14th century manuscript, and similarly contain only the nucleus and the very first part of Kamar al-Zaman. If the Syrian branch shows a fortunately stunted growth that helped preserve the original, the Egyptian branch, on the contrary, shows a proliferation that produced an abundance of poisonous fruits that proved almost fatal to the original. First, there exists a plethora of Egyptian copies, all of which, except for one written in the 17th century, are late, dating between the second part of the 18th and the first part of the 19th century. Second, these copies delete or modify passages that exist in the Syrian manuscripts, add others, and indiscriminately borrow from each other. Third, the copyists, driven to complete 1001 nights, kept adding folk tales, fables and anecdotes from Indian, Persian and Turkish as well as indigenous sources, both from the oral and from the written traditions. One such example is the story of Sinbad, which, though early in date, is a later edition. What emerged, of course, was a large, heterogeneous, indiscriminate collection of stories by different hands and from different sources, representing different layers of culture, literary conventions and styles tinged with the Ottoman caste of the time. A work very different from the fundamentally homogeneous original, which was the clear expression of the life, culture and literary style of a single historical moment, namely the Mamluk period. This is the more significant because the Ottoman period is marked by a sharp decline in Arabic culture in general and literature in particular. The mania for collecting more stories and completing the work led some copyists to resort even to forgery. Such is a case of none other than the story of Aladdin and the Magic Lamp. This story is not among the eleven basic stories of the original work, nor does it appear in any known Arabic manuscript or edition, save in two, both written in Paris, long after it had appeared in Galland's translation. Galland himself, as his diaries indicate, first heard the story in 1709 from Hannah Diab, a Maramite Christian of Aleppo, who may have subsequently written it down and given it to Galland for his translation. The first time the story appeared in Arabic was in 1787, in a manuscript written by a Syrian Christian priest living in Paris, 
named Dionysius Shawish, alias Dumb Dennis Chavis, a manuscript designed to complete the missing portions of the 14th-century Syrian manuscript. The story appeared again in a manuscript written between 1805 and 1808 in Paris by Mikhail Sabah, a Syrian collaborator of Silvestri de Sassi. Sabah claimed to have copied it in turn from a Baghdad manuscript written in 1703. Such good fortune in retrieving not one but two versions of a lost, wonderful tale might be cause for rejoicing, as it indeed was among the scholars. However, a careful examination of the two versions, both in the light of the general style of the knights and in the light of Galland's translation, leads to a less joyful conclusion. Chavis fabricated the text by translating Galland back into Arabic, as is manifest from his French syntax and turns of phrase, and Sabah perpetuated the hoax by improving Chavis's translation and claiming it to be a Baghdad version. And this forgery was the source used by Payne and Burton for their own translations of the story. The Mahdi Edition it is one of the curiosities of literary history that a work that has been circulating since the ninth century, that has been heard and read for centuries by young and old everywhere, and that has become a world classic, should wait until very recently for a proper edition. This is curious yet understandable as one of the anomalies of comparative cultural studies. While the history of textual scholarship in the West has been, since the Renaissance, increasingly one of keen accuracy and authenticity, its counterpart in the East, especially in the case of the Knights, has been one of error and corruption, at the hands of Eastern and Western scholars alike, the result of ignorance and contempt. It is all the more gratifying, therefore, that the most recent edition of the Arabic text of the Knights should be by far the best. After years of sifting, analysing and collating virtually all available texts, Musin Mahdi has published the definitive edition of the 14th-century Syrian manuscript in the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mahdi fills lacunae, immense corruptions and elucidates obscurities. However, he refrains from providing punctuation and diacritical marks or corrected spellings. What emerges is a coherent and precise work of art that, unlike other versions, is like a restored icon or musical score without the added layers of paint or distortions, hence as close to the original as possible. Thus a long-standing grievance has been finally redressed and redressed with a sense of poetic justice, not only because this edition redeems all others from a general curse, but also because it is the work of a man who is at once the product of East and West. And it is particularly gratifying to me personally, because it has provided me with a text for my translation. For all a given translator's knowledge and skill, a translation is essentially a matter of sensitivity and taste, applied in one thousand and one instances. As such, for the translator, who stands astride two cultures, possesses two different sensibilities, 
and assumes a double identity. A translation is a journey of self-discovery. And the road to truth is like the road to fairyland, fraught with perils and requires an innocent suspension of disbelief in the self and what it creates. By translating the work, one translates oneself. The little Arab boy who listened to the Thousand and One Nights has become the English storyteller. He may have produced a strange creature, a man with an ass's head, or may even, like Bottom, sport an ass's head of his own. What does it matter, so long as he has dreamed, in one Baghdad or another, a dream in the lap of a fairy queen? Hussein Hadawi, Reno, 1988 I hope you've enjoyed this little introduction to the book and I felt it would help to give some perspective to the translation that I'm about to read. Our next episode will begin properly with The Arabian Nights. Until then, just to remind you, my name is David Clark. My email is david at verysmallrocks.io if you want to contact me, or you can read my blog and see my website at verysmallrocks.io.